Our Old Testament scripture reading is Deuteronomy 14, verses 1 and 2. Our text from, for our sermon will be from 1 Thessalonians. In chapter 4, the Apostle, the Apostle Paul exhorts the church not to mourn as others do who have no hope. In these verses from Deuteronomy 14, we have an example of that same exhortation. Israel being exhorted not to grieve in the way of the nations around them. Deuteronomy 14, verses 1 and 2. You are the sons of the Lord your God. You shall not cut yourselves or make any baldness on your foreheads for the dead. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. And the Lord has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our New Testament reading is 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. It's also the text for our sermon. Actually, our, the text begins at verse 13. We read the whole chapter for context. 1 Thessalonians 4. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from all sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, do this, to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray.
Our Father in heaven, we seek with humility the presence of your Holy Spirit among us as your gathered people. We have heard your call to worship from your word. We have heard an assurance of pardon. We have seen your promises signified and sealed in baptism. And so even as we humbly seek your presence, we also do so with confidence. For you have promised to be here when your church gathers. We make this prayer in particular as we gather around your word so that this word might be for us in our experience a means of grace, a tool, an instrument in your hand that you are using to work in us. Even as the Apostle Paul exhorts that we should not be uninformed, we desire to be formed by you, shaped and molded by your Spirit's work as we gather around your word. And so we ask you to do this for us, through this the preaching of your holy word, for we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, to feel the urgency, the drama of what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, we need to remember something of the time that it was being written in. This was very soon after the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, very soon after that event announced that death had been defeated. And so you have to remember what it would have been like to be living in those early days, especially if you were a a Jewish believer who had trusted in the Lord all of your life, and now you have received by faith the good news that the Messiah has come. The one you were waiting for has come, and by his resurrection, death is defeated. You're going to be wondering at that time, now what? What is, what is going on? What is life now? What is the world now? What are we to be doing? And then, someone would die. And you have to imagine what it would have been like in those days. You're, you're wondering, what, what is the world now? What is life now? The Messiah has come. The kingdom has been announced. Death has been defeated. Why did my loved one who trusts in the Lord die? It is that question that drove Paul to write these words in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. I trust this is a question that resonates even with us, not simply remembering what it would have been like to be in those early days after the resurrection of Christ, but even now the question presses upon us as followers of Jesus Christ. If all of this is true, Jesus has risen again from the dead, now what? What is life? What, what are we doing? What are we about as a church, as Christians? And especially, what does it mean that death still remains in the world? This is the question Paul is answering. And his answer begins. I, maybe it sounds uninteresting at first, but I, I think this is beautiful. His answer begins with these words, verse 13, but we do not want you to be uninformed. He says there's things you need to know that you need to have straight. So what I want to do together this morning is I want to set before us the words of the Apostle Paul here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 saying to us today, to you right now, do not be uninformed. Because everything Paul says in this chapter is stuff that Christians today, we today, are very tempted to get wrong. 
to be uninformed about. And so I want us to hear these words with the same sense of urgency and drama that the, that the Thessalonians would have heard it from Paul, asking dramatic questions. What is life? Who are we? What are we to be about? Why do we still die? What is going on now that Jesus rose again from the dead? I want us to hear it speaking directly to us. Do not be uninformed. This is the gospel. We're going to hear this in three parts. Do not be uninformed about the gospel. Just what is it that we proclaim as a Christian church? So many ways to be confused. Let's be clear. Second, do not be uninformed about God's promise for you. As this chapter forces us to consider the reality of death, our thoughts about the future as Christians, as churches, throughout the history of the church, go in all sorts of confusing places. We need to be clear. What is God's promise? And then third, do not be uninformed about all of life. We are talking about something this morning that affects life now. And we need to be clear about that, to hear that rightly. Do not be uninformed. The gospel, God's promise, and all of life. First, the gospel. What does Paul say they need to know? What is the thing they need to know and be clear about to understand life in the here and now? Now that Jesus has come, what do we need to know? Verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. So he's going to tell them, and we're going to develop this in a moment later on in the text. He's telling them that death is different now. It's not what it was before. Indeed, it's always been different for followers of the Lord, the covenant people. And he says that means that you're going to grieve, but you're going to do so in a different way. He's going to talk about that. And he says, yes, to those early Christians, as they're experiencing loved ones who trust in the Lord dying, and they're wondering what's going on, he gives them the promise, the end of verse 16, the dead in Christ will rise first. So here's the core of what he tells them. That yes, believers are still going to die. But the promise is of resurrection. That they are not being forgotten. They are not being left behind. They're not being lost to the grave. But there is something more that's going to happen. So what we're asking now is how does he get there? Verse 14. Here's where we begin. He says, do not be uninformed. What do you need to know? For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, Even so, through Jesus, and then he goes on to say what the promise is for us. Let's stop here for a moment. The gospel is this, that Jesus died and rose again. Do we hear the words rose again rightly? Christians, churches, veer all over the place on this. What does resurrection mean? It does not mean Jesus' soul went to heaven. Is that what it means? It does not mean his teaching remains alive among us because we have his word. It does not mean I know he lives because he lives in my heart. That is not what resurrection means. Resurrection means when Paul says he rose again, what it means is the body that went into the tomb came out of the tomb. It means that the body that went into the tomb came out of the tomb in such a way that those who knew him could recognize him. Now, we also know from the stories of the resurrection that he was also different. This is the other key part about what resurrection means. 
Resurrection is not simply a dead person being alive again. What Lazarus experienced, for example, or what there's you know, stories in the Old Testament of someone being risen from the dead, that's what you might call the resuscitation. They had to die again. As I love to say, I feel sorry for Lazarus, he had to die twice. That's not what resurrection is. Resurrection is not a resuscitation, simply someone being alive again. The resurrection of Jesus is the new creation. He was a glorified body. And so he was recognized, but he was also different. And that differentness was because the future that Israel was expecting, that one day God was going to act to make the world new, to undo death, to set the world right, that was Israel's hope, that future had broken into the present. In Jesus, God took what he was going to do away in the future, and he said, here it is now. You get to see it now. Be confident in it now. Resurrection meant the body that went into the tomb came out of the tomb, and it came out of the tomb as part of the glory of the new creation. We are not talking about sentimentally merely continued spiritual existence. The Greek and Roman culture had ways to talk about that. If what the Apostle Paul wanted to say is that Jesus now lives in our hearts and it's kind of like he's alive again, if that's what he wanted to say, they had words for saying that. It is not the Christian claim. What was announced, the body that went into the tomb came out of the tomb as part of God's new creation. And it did so as a public event in history. When he says, I do not want you to be uninformed, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, the Apostle Paul is speaking of something that was knowable as a historical event. When Paul is writing this, you could go talk to the eyewitnesses. And so the Christian announcement was not, I've had this great spiritual experience that works for me, and I hope it'll work for you. It's not, I have this way of being spiritual, and I invite you to this way. It is, first of all, the announcement of an event that happened in the middle of history and that changed the world and that was done publicly. This is the gospel. Now, why do we spend so much time on this? Because everything Paul is about to say about our hope, everything he is about to say about our life, we can only get right if we get this right. That he was raised bodily, the tomb was empty as part of the new creation, and that he was raised as a public event in the middle of history. We're going to go on, you know, there's three points, promise of God, all of life. Brothers and sisters, let us announce, talk about, speak of, think and feel about the gospel of Jesus Christ in this way. His body was raised, death lost, death itself was defeated in his death and resurrection, and we announce it not as, not as simply a private thing for us. I've warned you many times in our time in the book of Ephesians, how the Apostle Paul speaks of the gospel as public truth, as being about the real world, the whole world, that it is the Creator who is acting. Our culture, American culture, American culture is perfectly happy to have us be Christians as long as we keep it in our hearts, as long as we keep it in our homes, as long as we keep it within the walls of the church. 
And Christianity in America submits to this constantly. And it's tempting because it can feel safe. Because we know our culture will pretty much leave us alone as long as we keep what we're saying just in our hearts. The scriptures will not allow us to speak this way. However much it may make us feel safer, avoid certain arguments, difficult things, we must speak of the gospel as an event that happened in time and space. A historical event that had witnesses that changed the world of Jesus having gone to the tomb, leaving the tomb, with a body that was of the new creation to come. This is the gospel. Do not be uninformed. Second, do not be uninformed, therefore, about God's promise. You see, when we, when, when we neglect that heart of the gospel as being a historic, physical event in time and space, then we end up neglecting that way of speaking for God's promises for us. When we as a Christian church veer into simply speaking in ways that suggest it's just about Jesus having this ongoing spiritual existence or presence or his teaching continues in our midst or he lives in my heart and all of these sorts of things, then we start speaking of our future as simply being what? I'm going to be a, you know, it's just a soul floating on a cloud somewhere, right? And we start to speak of the future simply in terms of going to heaven one day in a way of kind of rejecting this creation and this life as being bad, as not being good, and we simply speak of a, of a, of a spiritual future. Paul, speaking to a church that is panicking, because people are dying and they don't know what to do about this, does not say it's okay, they're in heaven now. He does not say that. It's true, but he doesn't say it because it's not enough. He doesn't say, don't worry, they've gone to heaven after they died. He doesn't say that body that went in the grave, that's not them. It's the soul that matters and the soul is in heaven. He doesn't say any of that. What does he tell them they need to know? That when Jesus returns, they will be raised from the dead. That when Jesus returns, the body that went into the grave will come out of the grave and it will be part of the new creation. Now that means that their soul is in heaven in God's presence as they await that day, but the central promise is that promise of the resurrection of the body. Listen to what Paul says. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, so you get the issue here, they're waiting for Jesus to come back. They're like, well, some of us are going to be alive when Jesus returns. I mean, someone is. Are those people going to have it better than those who have died? Are those who have died going to miss out on this when Jesus returns. And he says, he says, no, end of verse 15, we will not precede those who have fallen asleep. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of command, with the voice of an archangel and the sound of a trumpet, and the dead in Christ will rise first. This is the promise of God, is resurrection. Bodies set right as part of the new creation. Just as Jesus, not, not a mere resuscitation, not merely someone who was dead being alive again, but being part of the new creation, this is what Paul announces. 
Why is Paul so confident in this? He uses the words, uh, verse 15, For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord. Beautiful, fascinating discussions of what he means by this. Now, I know this can be a little bit annoying, but I, I tend to think what he means is all, all, all the possible meanings. I think it's all of it, right? They had the words of the Lord Jesus Christ who had spoken to his disciples. Perhaps he means that as an apostle, he has been given a word from the Lord, special insight as he is writing this letter. All of that is possible too. But what we must not neglect is that Paul grew up with the word from the Lord, the scriptures, and that the scriptures of Israel testified clearly to two things that matter for what Paul is saying here. One, there's a picture throughout the scriptures of God's people being represented by one who is anointed. Represented by prophets, priests, kings. The language, they would be represented by the Messiah, the Christ who would come. And that, in a sense, they are connected with them. That they're part of a body, united with that one, that anointed one who represents them. And that theme comes to a focus in how Paul, throughout his letters, talks about how we are connected with Jesus. And so one of the reasons he is so confident that when Jesus returns, the dead will be raised, is because that's what happened to Jesus. And we are united to him by faith so that we have the promise that what had happened to him will then happen to us. Think of the language of Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. Christ is the first fruits, the beginning of the harvest, the promise of more harvest. And so one of the reasons Paul is so confident in this promise that we will be raised as Christ was is that we are united to Christ by faith. So that what happened to him is the announcement of what is God's promise for us. The other reason he's so confident is that the Old Testament scriptures are crystal clear that God's covenant love, his steadfast love, his covenant faithfulness, his his binding of his people to himself is the sort of thing that cannot be broken, even by death. It is the sort of thing that cannot be separated by anything. His covenant love, his binding of his people to himself is absolute and trustworthy. So that Psalm 23 can say, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So that Psalm 16 can say, you will not abandon my soul to the grave. So Psalm 73 can speak of the the confidence of continual enjoyment of God's presence. Why are the Psalms full of these expressions? Because that is the character of God's love and covenant faithfulness. It cannot be broken. The good creator is not abandoning his creation. So Paul says, on the basis of that clear testimony of the scriptures, that when we die, that bond with God cannot be broken. We are immediately in the presence of God. And we do so awaiting the main promise which is that when Christ returns, our bodies will be raised. Do some of you have some lingering questions about our text? There's something we got to deal with here. Did anyone think the word rapture when we read this? Let's undo this, all right? Some of us have encountered the idea of a secret rapture. It's a really quiet trumpet, apparently. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of a trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. This is clearly speaking not of something strange or secret or bizarre that's going to happen in the middle of history. It's speaking of the end of history when Christ returns. 
Verse 17, Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Now we have to be careful. Paul is here speaking in what we can call apocalyptic imagery, the language of revelation. And so we don't always know exactly just how literally the words are intended, but even if we take it as literally as we possibly can, here's the key. Which direction is Jesus going in this passage? He is going, it says, he's descending. He's coming from heaven to earth. He is not, the, the ones here who are being caught up to the Lord are not being taken to heaven. Rather, what they are doing is they are joining the Lord in his way to the earth. Because the earth is the Lord's. And he is going to remake his creation. He's not abandoning it. And so the picture here is not of souls or individuals being zapped away. In fact, many scholars have recently argued that the language of meet the Lord in verse 17 is a word that was actually used at that time when a dignitary, someone who was very important, was traveling to come to a city and you saw that he was a ways off almost to the city, that you would all go out there to meet him. You're so excited to see him and then you come with him into the city. That, that word is the exact word that was used for that situation and it is that word that the Apostle Paul uses here. What he's saying is, Christ will return. Those who are alive will meet him in whatever mysterious way this is describing, but they won't be getting an advantage because those who have died in the Lord will rise from the dead. And so the promise is the exact same thing it's promised everywhere else in the New Testament. Here is the future. When we die, our soul is immediately in God's presence. Not because that's the end of the story, but because we are awaiting that when Christ returns, our bodies will be raised. Brothers and sisters, do not be uninformed. The Creator has not abandoned His good creation. And the future He promises you is not a future of abandoning His good creation. He has rather acted in the Lord Jesus Christ to definitively bring in the present what He will one day do fully in the future of the whole creation set right a new heavens and a new earth, bodies raised. And that when you die, that does not mean you're going to miss out on that. And so he tells those believers in 1 Thessalonians 4 that your loved one who you have laid in the grave will not be missing any of this, for the dead in Christ will rise first. Because the whole promise from the very beginning has been resurrection and new creation. Now, he says this here as a comfort and assurance for them regarding their loved ones, but it's also announced for us that this is God's promise to you, that when you die and you are laid in the grave, that that body will be raised when Christ returns. However mysterious and glorious this is, as part of the new creation, never to die again, never to be subject to the curse, to sin, to sickness, to the brokenness of this creation. And this promise, as clear as it is, is so easily forgotten in how we talk about the future, how we talk about loved ones who have died. We must say more often, that our loved one has died and will rise again. I want to warn you of the danger of only speaking of going to heaven. It sounds odd, doesn't it? But we have ways of speaking that way 
that neglect what God's word says here, which is that the central promise is of resurrection. And he says, you know, when we talk about resurrection, new creation, it raises all sorts of fascinating questions, right? What it will be like. The center of all of it is what Paul ends with in verse 17. And so we will always be with the Lord. That is the point. That is the assurance. That is the promise. However mysterious the idea of new creation is, the center of it is this. So we will always be with the Lord. Finally this morning, do not be uninformed about all of life. When we get right the emphasis on Christ's resurrection, when we then get right what Paul says here, the emphasis on our future hope being our bodies being raised when Christ returns, being new creation, this then affects in every way how we live now. You see, what's the accusation so often made to Christians? That you guys are talking about this heavenly thing, this future thing, in a way that then makes you worthless for life now. It sounds like you're rejecting life now. You're saying life now doesn't matter. You're saying these bodies don't matter. You're saying the creation doesn't matter. That it's all about this future spiritual thing. Well, too often when Christians are accused of doing that, it's because Christians are doing that. Do not be uninformed. All that Paul here announces affects all of life. It affects, first of all, how we grieve. This is where Paul started, right? Verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. He tells them, just as as the Lord said in Deuteronomy 14, you should not grieve in the way of the pagans. Why? Because they don't have hope. Because all they know is the curse and the reality of death. You have been given hope, and that ought to affect how you grieve. Wait a minute, though. It ought to affect how you grieve, not whether you grieve. And sometimes I think that in the Christian church today, we need to hear that point. One of the things resurrection in particular tells us is that we ought to grieve. Because resurrection tells us that death is bad. Right? If, if the story is simply, um, we hope to escape our bodies and go to heaven one day, the goal is simply spiritual existence without a body floating on a cloud somewhere, then we can lose track of why death is even a bad thing. And then we start talking about when our loved ones die, well, they're in heaven now, isn't that great? We just talk about them being in heaven, and again, we lose track of, well, okay, then aren't they better off, and how is death a bad thing then? The scriptures say death is an enemy. Death is bad. And God is not simply saying, uh, you know, don't worry, you know, death is not, don't, don't worry about it. It's, it's, not, it's not a bad thing. You're going to go to heaven. It's better anyway. God says, no, 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 no. He's going to defeat death. He's going to undo it. He's going to conquer it because our embodied life is good and it matters to him. So that when Paul says, you do not grieve as others do who have no hope, one of the things he's telling you is to grieve. Death is bad. It is an enemy. And we grieve with hope. Because the promise of the resurrection is that death will be undone. 
Another way of capturing this is Paul's wonderful language in 1 Corinthians 15 that we read earlier at the beginning of our service. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. It's an enemy. So we grieve. We need, we need to do away with this, this false piety that wants to simply speak as though you know, we're, we're supposed to just be happy about all of this. We grieve death. It's an enemy. God's word says it's an enemy. But it's an enemy that will be defeated and that has been defeated. And so we grieve with hope, with confidence in God's promise that that which we grieve has been conquered in the resurrection of Christ and will finally be conquered when Christ returns. It affects all of life, how we grieve. But more than that, more than that, it affects all of life. Because what did we just say? The resurrection is God's announcement that our bodies matter to Him. The resurrection is God's announcement that the created life of this creation is good and matters to Him. It is the announcement that the Creator is not abandoning His creation, that our bodies, what we do with our bodies, how we live with our bodies, matters to Him, and it is good. The resurrection is the (laughs) exclamation point, the underlining, the affirming of creation. Genesis 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. It is good and he is not abandoning it. So, what is announced by the resurrection then is this life transformed. What has happened because of the curse is we have all manner of ways of living that twist and distort and break life as it is meant to be. And the resurrection is God's announcement that he is in the here and now giving us the gift of life as it is meant to be. Two examples from our context. He speaks in the immediate vicinity of these words of both drunkenness in chapter 5, verse 7, and of sexual immorality in the passage we read, chapter 4, verse 3. Right in the vicinity of this announcement of resurrection, he speaks of drunkenness and sexual immorality. And what is striking about those two things is that they are both the twisting, the distorting of God's good gifts. God's good created gifts. The scriptures commend wine and its goodness and the enjoyment of it as good. Drunkenness is the distortion, the breaking of that good thing. The scriptures commend the sexual intimacy between husband and wife in marriage. Sexual immorality is the distorting, the breaking of that good thing. Do you hear how the doctrine of resurrection affects how we hear this? When Paul condemns those things, it's because he is defending the good that God created, the right use of the thing that God created. The creation and the enjoyment of God's creation is affirmed. More than that, ordinary life as a whole is affirmed. We're we're speaking of all of these lofty things of resurrection, new creation. How, How do we testify to that in the world? Well, First of all, by avoiding those sins that are the distorting, the twisting, the breaking of God's good creation. But it's also, and this might seem even somewhat anticlimactic to you, listen to verse 10. No, excuse me, verse 11. That you ought to aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. He says, here's the Christian life. Carry out your ordinary earthly calling quietly. 
He doesn't say, go try to change pagan Rome. He says, be faithful where you are. And in this, the resurrection then is affirming everything you do through the week in God's good creation as being good, as having dignity, as being a means by which you glorify him as the creator. The creator claims all of it as being for him. He made it, and by the resurrection he affirms he is rescuing it. Those, the, all the ways in which we twist and distort this, the way we break God's good creation, even the sins mentioned here of drunkenness and sexual immorality, one of the other reasons these things need to be mentioned right next to the affirmation of resurrection, is all of these sins are enslaving. Sin is enslaving. That's the imagery of sin in the Exodus, right? Israel being brought out of Egypt, that sin is enslaving. The resurrection announces that the God who brought Jesus from the tomb is able to break your slavery to sin. That the spirit by which Jesus was raised is the spirit that is able to free us from sin, to give us new life, so that when we are frightened by the darkness, by the brokenness that comes from within, the resurrection announces the good news that we are not enslaved to those things, that by the spirit we are able to walk in new life following Christ. Finally, the ordinary is affirmed, I'm talking about all of life, so also is our life together. This is one of the things emphasized in uh, the context that we read. Verse 9, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. I love how Paul says this. He says, regarding brotherly love, you don't need to hear from me. You're doing it, but do it more. More. Embrace that life together. All sorts of reasons why. How about just in this text in particular? Because if we are going to persevere in this life of faith in God's promised future, if we're going to persevere in announcing the gospel of Jesus Christ as public truth, whatever the resistance is, if we are going to persevere in refusing those ways of living that twist and distort God's good gifts, if we are going to persevere in grieving with hope, we need each other. We need the church. We need our fellowship together to enable us to stay the course, to continue on that path. And so Paul says at the end of our text, verse 18, therefore, encourage one another with these words. Congregation of Christ, speak of these things. Warn each other of the dangers. Encourage each other to grieve and to do so with hope, to be bold in speaking of the gospel as public truth. Encourage one another with these words. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we praise you for the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he has died and risen again. Help us to receive this by faith and to receive it by faith in a way that shapes and forms all that we do. We desire to live as people of the resurrection and we pray for your Holy Spirit's power to enable us to do so. For we pray in Jesus' name, 
Amen.